All right, we're in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. If you want to open there, we're in chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. Not quite the whole chapter because I think the end of the chapter is going to go better with chapter 12. Uh, this is a little uh, theme in itself, verses 1 through 14. So Revelation 11, verses 1 through 14. The topic we're going to encounter, the whole world celebrates the Antichrist's killing of God's two witnesses while watching the events live from Jerusalem. The title of our message, Beast Tube. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks for our morning. It's always great to get together with other believers and lift up uh, our united hearts in praise. Whether we sing or whether we just enjoy the singing, our hearts are touched, Lord, remembering that as our Father in heaven, you receive our praises as we would those of our own children, Lord, their singing and, and their uh, uh, attempts, Lord, to uh, show us love. And so we thank you for receiving our worship today. We also understand that it prepares our hearts to hear your spirit teach us your word. And Lord, that's what we deeply need is the presence of the Holy Spirit in this place, taking the word of God and making it alive in our hearts. While we want to learn a lot about this future time and uh, just about studying the Bible itself uh, in context, we mostly want to see you, Jesus. And so I pray that you would reveal yourself in every verse of this incredible text. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I am terrible at measuring things. If I'm ever helping you with anything, don't ask me to measure. No matter how many times I take a measurement, I'm always off by a significant amount. I sometimes confuse measurements like tablespoons and teaspoons. Like the weekend Pam was gone on a women's retreat. The kids were little. I think they were four and two. They had colds. And I was giving them their liquid meds every six hours. Supposed to be a teaspoon, not a tablespoon. Did you know that one tablespoon converts to three teaspoons? Well, I do now, and so do they. I thought, man, this medicine is the most effective medicine I've ever seen. They just, no congestion, total zombie look. I thought, man... When I discovered my mistake, I called our pediatrician. That's back when you could do that, back in the Stone Age. He reassured me I had not killed them. Not yet, anyway, but he told me I should probably quit giving them that much medicine. Pam had some things to say to me as well, but they were, they were all encouraging. No, they actually were. I, I had to fess up. I called her at the... She called in on Sunday. She goes, how are the kids? I go, well, they're alive. Dr. Mason says, I didn't hurt them. <laughs> God properly employs a unit of measure in our text, a reed like a measuring rod. It must be quite a reed because it gives the Lord both a physical and a spiritual measurement. John is instructed to measure the temple of God, the altar, but especially those who worship there. We might use the word evaluate in place of measure. God is going to evaluate the worshipers. Do you ever think God evaluates your worship? Well, he does, and it's a good thing that he does. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, God takes your measure as a worshiper. And number two, God takes measures to woo your worship. First of all, in verses 1 through 10, God takes your measure as a worshiper. Wait a minute. Where is this temple that John is told to measure? Because it doesn't exist today. 
Well, it's in Jerusalem on the ancient site of the previous temples. At least it's going to be. We are certain that there will be a temple during the tribulation. Daniel, in his prophecies regarding the tribulation, often refers to a temple and to the events that will take place there. Jesus, quoting Daniel, spoke of the temple existing in the tribulation. Here's one of the things Daniel said. This is from Daniel chapter 9. It's verse 27. Then he, speaking of the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant or a treaty with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined. Now, Daniel was talking about the final seven years before the second coming of Jesus Christ, what we call the tribulation. Notice during that period, he says there will be sacrifice and offering. That means the Jews will be offering sacrifices at a temple because that's the only place they can do that. He is the world leader we commonly call the Antichrist. He will enter into a treaty with many, which is referring to the leaders of Israel, for one week. That's a week of years, seven years, corresponding to the length of the tribulation. In the middle of the week, the Antichrist stops the Jews from worshiping, and he does something to desecrate the temple. Jesus referred to this same event as the abomination of desolation. He said it marked the midpoint of the great tribulation. And then Jesus said in Matthew 24, Jews would need to flee immediately for their lives as the Antichrist will begin to mount a satanically empowered campaign of attempting genocide against them. Our verses in Revelation give us a look at the worshipers in the tribulation temple prior to Antichrist's campaign of carnage against them and the treading down of Jerusalem. And so we pick it up in verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. When the Jews were delivered from 400 years of bondage in Egypt, God instructed them to construct a movable tabernacle. It was a tent, really, called the Tent of Meeting. It was a representation on earth of things that exist in the temple in heaven. Since the tabernacle, there have been three permanent temples. Solomon built a magnificent temple using his dad's blueprints. After Solomon's temple was completed, the tabernacle was dismantled. It may have been stored in a room under the temple mount in Jerusalem, and some scholars actually suggest parts of it may still lie there to this day. Uh, Archaeological digs are not allowed in this area, Uh, And so there's uh, massive amounts of speculation as to what might be under the Temple Mount, including the Ark of the Covenant. But some suggest that the uh, tabernacle that was taken down might yet be found. Solomon's temple, you'll remember, was destroyed by the Babylonians in the 6th century B.C. Upon their return to Jerusalem following 70 years of captivity in Babylon, the Jews built a modest temple. It's called Zerubbabel's temple because Zerubbabel was governor of Israel at the time, and he and the high priest Joshua uh, led its rebuilding. And so the second temple is Zerubbabel's temple. King Herod the Great transformed Zerubbabel's temple into the huge structure that we've all seen models of. It was the temple that stood when Jesus was on the earth. It is sometimes called the second temple because it was a remodel, but because it was so elaborate, many scholars label it the third temple. 
it was destroyed by the Romans around 70 AD. And so I only tell you that because if you're reading about the temple, the numbers can be confusing. So you've got Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, King Herod's temple. But since King Herod's temple was a remodel, sometimes they refer to it as the second temple. As we've reported many times in our weekly prophecy segment, the Temple Institute in Israel is planning for the construction and the operation of another temple. They've got all the furniture and most of the implements needed to get the temple up and running. It's already available. And the temple would be nothing to construct. You remember in the wilderness, it was a tent. The actual temple itself is about 2,700 square feet that you just need two chambers the holy place and the holy of holies. When we think temple, we think of the entire structure that Herod built that took him decades and that was magnificent. But you could throw up a temple as quick as you could erect a tent. Uh, now, it'll obviously be added onto and built and it'll be grander than that, but it wouldn't take long at all to construct a temple and to reinstitute sacrifice and offering. So verse two, leave out the court which is outside the temple, don't measure it, it's been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, the Jewish calendar is based on a 30-day month. 42 months equals 1,260 days, and it's the same as three and a half years. We'll see those three numerical designations used interchangeably in the Revelation. 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years. This verse seems to be saying that Gentiles and Jews will have kumbaya for a time, coexisting in peace, but it will be followed by three and a half years of Gentile persecution against Jews as Jerusalem is tread underfoot. Daniel said the Jews would bring their sacrifices and offerings to this temple. As they do, God will measure those who worship there. They won't quite measure up. How can I say that confidently? When Jesus died on the cross... God tore the veil that was hanging between the holy place and the holy of holies in Herod's temple. He tore it from top to bottom to signify that the way to worship him was by the once for all sacrifice of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sacrifice and offerings in the tribulation temple give God no pleasure and they do nothing for the Jew who offers them. When Jesus died on the cross, it was the final sacrifice for the sins of the world. It was the last lamb to be offered. No need for a temple on earth. And that's why God tore the veil. He says, come in by way of Jesus Christ. And so to reconstruct this temple and to reinstitute the Old Testament system of sacrifices and offerings is to ignore Jesus Christ. It's to be a non-believer of Jesus Christ. The rebuilt temple will exert a powerful influence on ethnic Jews. Over the last several years, there'd be a growing interest in the rebuilding of a temple. A few years ago, when we were doing prophecy updates, a very small minority of Jews were calling for the rebuilding of a temple. Now, more and more Jews, even who are not necessarily orthodox, and it's gotten into the political arena as well, calling for the rebuilding of a temple. And even those outside of Judaism are calling for the rebuilding of a temple because they see it as a symbol of peace. Uh, and so it's very interesting the pull that this temple will have on Jews during the tribulation. 
it will have such a powerful influence that God will send something even more powerful to give the truth, his two witnesses. In verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. This must be the first three and a half years of the tribulation because we're going to see the two witnesses killed in Jerusalem before the Antichrist begins treading upon Jerusalem in a mad frenzy to exterminate the Jews for the last three and a half years. And so for three and one half years, the first half of the tribulation, the two witnesses are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the whole world, but especially to Jews who worship in the temple. Why do I say they have a special emphasis on the Jews? Because of how their ministry is described in the next verse. It says in verse 4, these are two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. The description of the two witnesses as olive trees and lampstands has an Old Testament source. When Zerubbabel's temple was built, God called Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor, his two olive trees and his two lampstands. And so he was saying that though the temple would be rebuilt, um, that it was by his might and by his power and in relationship with him represented by these two guys. Now, the tribulation temple, it's going to have a menorah with priests keeping its bowls of oil filled and its wicks trimmed. And it might be the menorah that is already at the Temple Institute. You can see photos of it on their website. They're ready to put it in place in the rebuilt temple. But the tribulation temple is not where God's presence will be. This verse says to Jews, you won't find Yahweh in the tribulation temple, but you will find him in Jesus, whom my two olive trees, my two lampstands are proclaiming. In other words, God says, you might have the menorah, but my lampstand, my olive trees are these two guys, and I want you to listen to them. I've raised them up to tell you the truth. Now, God will validate the Jesus message of these two witnesses. Look at verses 5 and 6. If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now, these guys are definitely old school, reminiscent of the prophets in the Old Testament whom God sent to Israel. We saw in a verse earlier, they're wearing sackcloth, which I like to call the uniform of the prophet. And so these guys come on scene. They are radical dudes that have a message uh, for Israel and for the whole world by extension, uh, and you don't want to mess with these guys. So let's get into speculating as to who they are. Obviously, we're not told. We're nowhere told the identity of these two witnesses. And uh, usually we don't like to speculate, but this is one where commentators do. So let's, let me give you the rundown of who we think they might be. Zerubbabel and Joshua are sometimes suggested as the two witnesses, since they're the ones that the verse refers to as olive trees and lampstands. That's not likely because there's no other reason to think that it's them. These may not be re-entry prophets at all. These could be the two men alive uh, as the tribulation begins whom God calls and empowers as prophets. So they could be just two uh, Jewish believers at the beginning of the tribulation whom God puts his anointing upon. 
The leading candidates among scholars, if you want to pick Old Testament characters, are Elijah, Moses, and Enoch. Now, the main reason for thinking Enoch is one of the witnesses is that he never physically died. His story, he prophesied before the global flood, and he was taken directly to heaven in a sort of rapture. He was on the earth one minute, and then he was gone. He was taken to heaven alive. The argument for Enoch is that whoever the witnesses are, they cannot have died previously because we read in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto men to die only once. The words in Hebrews, however, are only a general principle. They're not a law. Lots of people died more than once. Everyone Jesus rose from the dead died more than once. Lazarus rose from the dead and he died again. And so uh, if the only reason we think it's Enoch is that he didn't die, then that's weak. Uh, And so there's really no compelling reason to think Enoch is one of the two witnesses. Most commentators think Elijah is definitely one of them for the following reasons. His ministry was a great deal like the ministry of the two witnesses. He caused the rain to cease for a period of three and a half years, and he called fire down from heaven. It is especially prophesied that Elijah will return before the end of the age. You read that in the uh, book of Malachi. Elijah had a unique conference with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Some commentators think Moses is definitely one of the two witnesses for the following reasons. His ministry was a great deal like the ministry of these two witnesses. For example, he could command plagues. God seemed to have a special purpose for the body of Moses that Satan wanted to defeat. In Jude, verse 9, you learn that Satan demanded Moses' body after he died, but God had Michael, the archangel, intervene. The enemies of Moses were uh, destroyed by fire, as these guys will be in the end times. And Moses was the other guy with Elijah at the unique conference with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the fact that during that conference, we're told Jesus spoke with Moses and Elijah about the future and the kingdom sort of gives them the edge uh, in terms of candidates for the two witnesses. Verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Not exactly the retirement that the two witnesses might have had in mind. Uh, it, it, uh, it can be very demanding serving the Lord, to say the least. And so these guys are absolutely indestructible for three and a half years. You want to harm them, they speak fire out of their mouth. They call down fire. They, there's no way that they can be touched. And then all of a sudden... Uh, All that ends, their divine protection is taken away from them, and they're killed. Now, this is the first mention of the beast in the Revelation. We'll see a lot more of him. This is a name, one of the many names for the Antichrist. If he ascends out of the bottomless pit, out of the abyss, how did he get there? Later in the Revelation, we're going to see that the Antichrist suffers a mortal wound, but he'll return to life. One commentary puts it like this. This incident, talking about his overcoming the two witnesses, will happen after his resurrection from the dead. He will come back from the abyss by means of his resurrection by Satan. Along with his resurrection, the act of killing the two witnesses will provide another reason why mankind will worship him. It says he makes war, overcomes, and kills. That indicates a prolonged campaign against them. He tries to kill them in various ways, but again, he can't until the moment God is through 
with that part of their testimony. And then verse 8, their dead bodies lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. It's Jerusalem because that's where our Lord was crucified. But God, you'll recall, is measuring the Jews. He's measuring their worship. He is evaluating them. And what's being said here is that spiritually speaking, when God looks at Jerusalem during this time, bringing their worship into the temple, he sees them more like he sees Sodom and more like he sees Egypt. That's the heart of the matter. This rebuilt temple with its renewed sacrifices is already an abomination to God before Antichrist defiles it. Think of it. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for the sins of the world on the cross, a cruel criminal's death. He raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven, tore the veil in half, letting everybody know that the sacrificial system was fulfilled and it was over. And then the Jews say, yeah, we don't want to have any part of Jesus Christ. We just want our temple. We want our sacrifices. We want our offerings. And we want to go on living the way that we've always lived not really bowing the knee to Jesus for sure. And so it's already an abomination before Antichrist defiles it. As far as a measurement, imagine if God were to evaluate us and say, well, I've, uh, here's your evaluation. You guys are Calvary Sodom. You guys are Calvary Egypt. It, it wouldn't set very well. It, it's, it's kind of stunning. Or in our personal lives, if God were to look at us and say, you know, you've got a little bit too much sexual sin in your life. You're more like Sodom than you want to admit. Or you're really infatuated with the world. This part of your life is Egypt. Uh, and, and so this is the type of measurement that goes on. Verse 9, then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into the graves. We've been talking mostly about the Jews. Peoples, tongues, tribes, and nations describes the rest of the world. Don't overlook that people all over the world, it says, will see their dead bodies. It's only been within my lifetime that the technology existed for everyone in the world to potentially see a live event at the same time. This is really a tremendous prophecy that would have seemed ludicrous when John first uttered it. This is why some people years ago, centuries ago, read the book of the Revelation as more of an allegory or more of a metaphor because they would read something like this where it says the whole world saw this event at the same time and they'd say, well, that's impossible. And since it's impossible, God must not mean that. And since he doesn't mean that, this must be an example or an allegory or a figure or a type. And then they spin out this whole system of theology based on that. All you have to do is wait. For guys like Marconi to invent things. And then we eventually have flat screen TVs that you're, man, they're giving them away at Walmart. To, man, my, the first, first like little flat screen TV about this big we bought here for the Calvary Cafe was, I think, $2,500. It was LCD, piece of garbage. Now you're, they're giving TVs away. We got both of these for less than that, I think. It, it's crazy. And these are what, 50 inches? Something like that. I can't count. Remember, I can't count. They're one tablespoon TVs is what they are. So anyway, uh, so this is a prophecy that is only able to be fulfilled in our day and age. And we, we, we read this and we think, well, sure. Yeah, it'll be on 
you know, CNN or the Beast Network or whatever, you know, whatever's happening at the time. That's why I said Beast Tube, you know, in case you didn't get that at the beginning. Uh, thank you. I'm going to hire you to laugh. But uh, anyway, so they're going to see this live. It says here that they wouldn't allow their bodies to be put in the graves. You know why? Because they're having a party. They're having a global holiday, and they, they just they close everything. They say, hey, everything's closed. The entire world is shutting down while we celebrate the death of these two guys. In verse 10, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. A global holiday, a time of merriment rather than mourning. Those who dwell on the earth means non-believers. It's a technical term. All over the earth, non-believers will exchange gifts. Amazon will be going crazy. By then, they'll be doing drone shipments. The sky will be black with drones as people are delivering gifts to one another. I wonder what the Google banner will be for those days. You know, Google has every day, is it every day or whenever they do, they change their banner in commemoration of something that's happening that day. And uh, I wonder what the celebration will be called. The hashtag will be Dead Prophet Society probably or something like that. But, you know, that, if it happened today, this is the kind, people will be tweeting it and it would be on social media and all of that kind of thing. The entire world, if you want to, can you even think of anything that would unite the entire world in one global holiday? To think that it would be the murder of two of God's prophets lets you know what kind of condition the human race is going to be in in just a short time. Did these two guys really torment those who dwell on the earth? It seemed like torment to non-believers who refused to repent and tried to kill them. How sad that the gospel of Jesus Christ, based as it is upon the love of God proven at the cross of Calvary, could be considered torment. And so these guys are offering free grace, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and people act like that is tormenting them so much so that they try to kill them for three and a half years. They keep trying. I don't know if they send ninja assassins or what, but these guys, you know, they can't be killed until finally the beast, the Antichrist, kills them and the whole world is watching. God measures worshipers. That means he measures you, he measures me, he measures us as a fellowship. What is his standard? Well, we're not talking, when we talk about worship here, we're not talking about singing or our worship service or anything like that. I suggest it's what Jesus called the great commandment. If you want to measure yourself, here's a great standard. He said in the Gospel of Matthew, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, before you feel bad because you don't measure up, remember that no one measures up. Only one person in the whole history of our race has been able to measure up to that standard. Jesus loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, and mind, and he loved his neighbor as himself. If you want to know how to do those things or what they look like, you study the life of Jesus Christ. There was never a time in his life that he didn't love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, and mind, and there was never a time he didn't love his neighbor as himself. 
Jesus is the standard. And so not only are, the, are these verses the standard, Jesus becomes the standard because in him these things are fulfilled. So should we throw in the towel? Well, hardly. Jesus gifted us with the Holy Spirit who lives inside us to empower us to do with God what is impossible for us as men and women to do without him. Do we fall short? Yes. Will we always fall short? Yes. Does God measure us to show us how far short we fall? Maybe, but I'd rather think that he's showing us how much more progress we need to make because he has promised to, that he who begun this good work in us will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. What he has started, he will finish. And so God measures us. We have to allow him to do it. We have to be honest. We have to sit before him and let him search our hearts. We have to be willing to hear that you're Gene Egypt right now or that you're acting more like Lot than Abraham or whatever the analogy would be as we sit under the teaching of the word of God and as the Holy Spirit brings that to our heart and then we need to be willing to repent so that instead of regressing in our walk, we are progressing, making progress in becoming more like Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 11 through 14, God takes measures to woo you in worship. In the concluding film to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Return of the King, when Aragorn suggests that the armies of men march against the gates of Mordor, Gimli utters his famous line, certainty of death, small chance of success, what are we waiting for? And then they march to what seems to be certain death. It could be the battle cry for most of God's prophets. It only goes to show the incredible lengths God will go to in order to woo worshipers. Many of the prophets started off on a footing where God actually told them, your message is not going to be received, but I'm going to empower it nevertheless. I'm going to reach out to men. By the way, there's a really good chance you'll be persecuted and killed. Certainty of death, small chance of success, what are we waiting for? Now, sometimes the prophets, they argued a little bit with God. Jeremiah had a bad day. Uh, Jonah had a bad week, uh, you know, that kind of a thing. But essentially, that's the deal. And you think, why, if you ever do think this, why did God do that? It is to show his incredible love for the human race. He came to his prophets and he says, I want to raise you up as my servant. Will you serve me? Do you love me? Yes, sure, of course. I love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Will you preach this message? Even if no one receives it, yes. Are you willing to die for me so that people can see how serious I am about reaching them? Yes. And so all of that is God reaching out to men. Verse 11, now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and a great fear fell on those who saw them. So for three and a half years, the two witnesses have been preaching about the resurrected Savior of the world and Messiah of Israel. Just as he had been raised from the dead after three and a half days, so were they. Those who saw them are the whole world. The whole world was watching. And all of a sudden, they get up. This will ruin your tailgate party for sure when you're celebrating the death of these guys. Probably crash Amazon the next day with returned gifts. Uh, because, you know, 
There's nothing to celebrate. What's the most incredible, mind-blowing thing you've ever seen happen on live television? You were watching, and it happened live. For me, it would have to be the second plane flying into the South Tower of the World Trade Center, too. Unforgettable, incredible, surreal, yet only too real. As you wondered and hoped beyond hope that it was a the same event you'd just seen earlier from a different angle, certainly there couldn't be a second plane taking down the second tower. It was incredible. And this event will have that kind of a, of a, a reverberating effect throughout the entire planet. I mean, the, the, all the non-believing people on the earth are rejoicing in the death of God's prophets when they suddenly stand up and then they're taken into heaven. What? What is happening? The resurrection will reverberate. And then verse 12, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. It's just my speculation, but I think they hear the voice audibly coming from heaven, not through their TVs or smartphones or tablets. God leaves no doubt that the two are his witnesses, that they have ascended alive into heaven, having been miraculously raised from the dead. Their enemies saw them. Some men fear, but remain enemies of the two witnesses and therefore enemies of God. Then verse 13, in the same hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. When disasters strike, I don't know what it is about us, but we expect statistics immediately. We want to know the damage in billions of dollars. We want to know what percentage of the fire has been contained. Somehow it gives us a handle on what is otherwise uncontrollable. There's some kind of wildfire. It's, it's you know, racing through canyons. It's destroying homes. It's taking lives. What percentage of that fire has been contained so that we can feel like we're moving towards control. Well, this great earthquake is going to claim a tenth of the city. Well, that might not mean much to you or I, but to the Jew, this tenth would be the tithe. And it would mean to them that God was maybe receiving from his people uh, what they owed him, what they owed him. The tithe goes all the way back to Abraham, if not before. And so it was something ingrained in the mind of a Jew. And so this would at least put another stamp an exclamation point on what was happening that this is the God of heaven. This is the God of Israel. He sent his prophets. He raised them from the dead. He called them to heaven and he put his stamp on that by taking the tenth that was owed to him. Now, having said that, we want to be careful ascribing disasters to God. I'm not saying God can't or won't or doesn't bring certain tragedies to bear. It's just become... Um, sadly common in our modern world for Christians to declare that almost every hurricane or earthquake or tsunami or whatever it might be is God's judgment upon that particular geography. And uh, I'm not saying that can't be true, but if it is true, God has really bad aim because he misses probably the most wicked cities in the world. Uh, even Hurricane Katrina, people said, oh, this is God's judgment against all of that wicked activity and, you know, where they have Mardi Gras and all that. Well, those parts of the city were spared. 
And so God must not have control of hurricanes once he lets them go, I guess. So we have to be really careful. In fact, we want to avoid that and ignore that. Whatever God does with tragedies, that's his business. Our response, compassion on survivors in the name of Jesus Christ. We're here in the name of Jesus Christ to help you, to help you recover in any way that we can and to share with you the wonderful news that God loved you enough to die for you and rise from the dead. Commentators are split on whether or not the rest in this verse who were afraid get saved. I lean towards, yeah, sure they do. Mostly because the phrase, and gave glory to God, is a really strong phrase. It's way more than an acknowledgement that God exists. Other places it is used, the phrase definitely means that the people giving God the glory were believers. God goes to extreme measures in order to woo his enemies on the earth, both Jew and Gentile. He permits the Antichrist to overcome and kill his two witnesses, but then he uses their resurrection from the dead to be the thing that can open blind eyes and draw men by grace to faith in Jesus Christ. It's as if God says, if you won't listen to their message while they're alive, I'll allow them to be killed and I'll raise them from the dead and that will reach some of you. That will open some of your eyes. Verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. The third woe is the blowing of the seventh trumpet. You remember this book is all about Jesus taking a scroll from his father's hand. He opens seven seals. When he opens the seventh seal, seven trumpets are blown. When the seventh trumpet is blown, seven bowls of wrath are poured out on the earth. And then Jesus returns in his second coming. As the tribulation intensifies, so do God's efforts to save the Jews and the inhabitants of the earth. Yes, the judgments of the seventh trumpet will be severe, like the world has never known before. Jesus said even that if he didn't come uh, when he does, if he didn't come at the time God, you know, purposed, the entire human race would have been destroyed. That's how terrible the judgments of the great tribulation are going to be. But in his wrath, God remembers mercy. The tribulation is the grace of wrath. You see, God has to keep dialing up the discipline because people will not respond. And the alternative ultimately is they're going to spend eternity separated from him in hell. And so God says, I'm going to send you prophets. I'm going to send you my son. I'm going to send you the church. Finally, I'm going to put you in the tribulation. Even then, I'm going to send you 144,000 witnesses. I'm going to send you two witnesses. Angels are going to fly around the sky preaching the gospel. The judgments are going to increase and increase until towards the end, it's going to be insane with judgments falling upon the earth one right after the other, entire populations being destroyed, the earth being you know, uh, pummeled. But all of it is so that you will open your eyes and be saved before it's actually too late, before Jesus touches down and has to divide the sheep from the goats. And, and then it's too late, then it's over. God has always been and will continue to seek worshipers. Jesus said to the woman at the well, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then he said this, the Father is seeking such to worship him. If you're a believer here this morning, God sought you out. He came after you. He saved you. Let him measure your worship. Repent of any regress. 
be refilled and refreshed by his spirit to make progress. It's as simple as that. But it's not easy because we, we, we like to hang on to certain things. It, let's say we're more like Lot. We're gene Egypt. You're making progress in many areas of your Christian life, but there are a few things that you're holding on to from your past or new things that you've gotten involved in that are not godly or whatever it might be. And, and you, you still feel like you're making progress, but in Hebrews it says it's a weight of sin that besets you. And God, as we sit under the teaching of the Word of God, we have to trust that the Holy Spirit actually tells us these things. says, hey, this is something that is not helping you to make progress in your Christian life. Either it's directly a sin or it's sin for you. So jettison it, get rid of it, drop it, repent of it. It's causing you to regress and start moving forward again because guess what? I'm about the business of making you more like Jesus, not less like him, and this is going to hinder that progress. And in the end, that's what you want to look like. You want to look like Jesus Christ. You don't want to look like anybody else. And so let's cooperate. And so if, he's, if you're a believer, God sought you out. By his grace, working on your heart, he allowed you to make a decision for Christ. He freed your will so that you could choose Christ and be saved. If you're not a believer, today you can be saved. You don't have to do anything. If you went to some other religious organization, they would say, well, here's one or 10 or 15 or 50 things you need to do. Go do these things and then we'll talk about it. You come to Jesus Christ and he says, hey, guess what? I've done everything for you because you couldn't do it. You couldn't die for your own sins. You'd still be a dead sinner. But I could take your place and give you my righteousness and start this work of completing you. And so all you need to do is receive that. You don't go from here and, and, and come back cleaned up. You come in filthy, God gives you a new garment, a white robe of righteousness, and then he starts to clean up your life by his power. It's not even you that cleans up your life. You don't, you don't get saved and say, now I'm gonna try really, really, really hard to overcome all of my faults. No, the Holy Spirit says, we are going to do this in the power that God has given you by my indwelling. And so maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. I don't know what that means to you. But you can be saved right now. All you have to do is cry out to the Lord and say, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I deserve hell, but I desire heaven and I see that I can get there because Jesus, you took my place on the cross. God lifted up Jesus on the cross to draw all men to himself. He is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. That's the single thing that you do. And it's really not a doing of anything. It's just an acknowledging saying, I believe that you are who you say you are. You did what you say you did and that you will save me for time and for eternity. And if you're not a Christian this morning, it's our prayer that you would do that. Decide if you will remain God's enemy or give him the glory.